Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we get to today's show, I wanted to let everyone know that we're in the initial stages of setting up a Politics Guys Insiders program that will feature all sorts of exclusive content just for supporters. Now, we're doing this on Patreon because, well, that's basically what Patreon is set up to do. So if you go to our Patreon page, it's patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash politics guys, you'll see we have six different supporter levels set up right now with rewards like an exclusive blog, a weekly insider's newsletter, extra shows and commentary available only to insiders, politics guys t-shirts, mugs, and tote bags, and even the opportunity to step into Jay or Trey's shoes and talk politics on the show with me. Um, Now, this is still very much a work in progress, but we plan to have the whole thing fully up and running this month. Now, that includes making sure that our current Patreon supporters are automatically enrolled in the new Insiders program. So I encourage you to check out our Patreon page. Again, that's patreon.com slash politics guys. And ideally, you'll become one of our newest Politics Guys insiders and start getting all those bonuses. But even if you're not able to be a financial supporter, we'd love to get your feedback about the insiders program, our Patreon page, or really anything related to the show. And you know how to reach us, of course. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. And again, our Patreon page is patreon.com slash politics guys. Thanks so much for your support. So with me today for our weekly news analysis show is my co-host, our newest politics guy, and my political science colleague, Trey Orndorff. Trey, take it away. Thanks, Michael. Uh, we got some interesting things going on this week, but I think what we're going to start off is talking a little bit about one of the big things that hit the news cycle, and that was the North Korean missile test. Uh, this is not kind of a new phenomenon, but as we both know, the culmination of a bigger phenomenon. On July 4th, those who don't know, uh, North Korea had their first ever test, and this time it's a big deal, an intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, the North Korea claims this could reach, quote, anywhere in the world, uh, but more accurately speaking, this means that they now have about a range of 5,500 kilometers. Uh, as a matter of fact, the timing is very purposeful. State news agencies in North Korea um, will laud the timing as a gift to the, quote, arrogant Americans, um, end quote. So there's a lot of in, uh, instability here going on. What do you think about this, Michael? Well, you know, I, I guess in part, I am, I, I'm, I'm happy that North Korea tends to be at least somewhat incompetent at this. And so their claims, of course, are, you know, overinflated. They can reach Alaska, which, you know, is, is certainly not a, not a good thing. Uh, but I guess I'm, I'm mostly concerned that I don't really see any good options here. I mean, even though North Korea is fairly incompetent in this, they're putting an awful lot of their limited resources into it. And it, it's pretty clear they're, they're making strides. At, you know, currently, I believe it's estimated they're thought to have somewhere between 10 and 20 nuclear weapons. Uh, they're only going to get better at this. And honestly, I don't see that the United States has any good options here. And so that, that's my real concern. This is a really awful place to be in. Yeah, as a matter of fact, being the statistics guy that I am, I'm always interested in trends. And one of the fascinating things here, Michael, is that so Kim Jong-un, you know, ruler since uh, 2011, he has actually fired more missile tests than his father and grandfather combined, um, raising up this really interesting question of how fast is he uh, moving forward with this, comparatively speaking. As a matter of fact, in 2016, uh, they launched 10 total. They were uh, successful 50% of the time, and they're already on track to beat that this year. They've got 12 this year with eight successes and only four failures. Um, and so as this kind of continues to ramp up, I think you're right. There aren't a lot of good options, but it seemingly becomes increasingly important to talk about what we can do, uh, given that this is not something that is maintaining a steady pace. It seems like it's increasing. Yeah. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I guess I pull back and think, well, what is, what is exactly that North Korea wants? That's sort of what I've been thinking about a little bit. Now, sometimes we can fall into that trap of assuming that other people think like us and, and are rational in the same way we are. And certainly North Korea sometimes seems not at all rational. But 
in thinking about this, I guess I came up with three main things that North Korea seems to want, what their goals are. Number one, the lifting of sanctions, which have really, you know, crippled their already pretty bad economy. Uh, secondly, they want U.S. troops out of South Korea, which have been there since, you know, the end of the Korean War in, in the early 1950s. And third, they want unification with South Korea under North Korean rule. Uh, now, I think number number three is certainly off the table. I don't think that's going to happen at any point. We're not going to allow that to happen. Number two, I don't see happening either. And, and number one, I don't even know how we get to number one. So I don't really see where there's much of a path forward to getting North Korea anything that they want, which is why I think this makes such a, this is such an intractable problem. You know, there are some people, right, who talk about, well, maybe what we should do is we should launch some sort of preemptive strike. And I think for a lot of reasons, that's a really awful idea for one thing. We, if we were going to do that, we should have done that before they had solid fuel missiles, which, uh, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, can be launched you know, pretty much at a moment's notice, whereas the older liquid fuel things required a lot of time to get ready and so forth. And so I think the time for a preemptive strike, that's that's passed. And so now we just deal with the reality of, of a North Korea that is going to be frustrated in its ambitions, and that's going to be increasingly sophisticated of a nuclear power. And I don't see how this ends anywhere close to, you know, in, in a good way. Now, before before we get to, to, to your kind of response to that, I wanted to thank our first sponsor for today's show, Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And it's accessible even to me, and trust me, Blue Apron can do it for me. Mr. Disaster, kitchen-wise, it can work really for anyone. And they do it all with these super fresh, high-quality ingredients. They partner with local firms, firms, farms, fisheries, ranchers. Uh, they source ingredients to support a sustainable food system. And the thing I really love is you get everything you need, including all the seasonings in these little seasoning packets. It's delivered right to your door. They give you these sheets, clear, full-colored prep instructions. And right now, it's a particularly big deal for me because my wife recently left on her annual three-week-plus international vacation. So I have to fend for myself in the kitchen, and this is a, a godsend. And there are great meals, like upcoming meals, shrimp rolls with quick pickles and sweet potato wedges, chili butter steaks with Parmesan potatoes and spinach, and fried egg and mushroom tartines with onion rings and endive salad. Um, my mouth is watering here. Um, and it's all really a great value. All of this, less than $10 per person per meal delivered right to your door. And if you check out this week's menu, you get your first three meals free with free shipping, all you have to do, go to blueapron.com slash TPG. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, uh, so Trey, back to, to, to your response to that. I mean, do you agree that the time for uh, a preemptive strike is passed or, or maybe maybe you don't? You know, it's a difficult question, but I am going to often tend on the side that I don't think that additional escalation of violence generally leads to the kind of outcomes that you want. Amen. Um, it's it's rare that you can kind of have this, oh, we're going to have a targeted strike, and then that's going to somehow, you know, stabilize the region. And that doesn't ever seem to be the case. As I've been kind of racking my brain about it, one of the things that I've kind of wondered, and I don't have a good answer to this, but... You know, we're we're living in a world that increasingly I believe that the idea that we're going to be able to contain nuclear missiles seems like it's less and less possible. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, is that a scarier universe to live in? Yes. Is but is but is it one that we can stop? And I'm just not sure that we can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I agree. And you know, and I think even even if we wanted to try to do well anything in a military sense, and even if we could take out North Korea's nuclear capability, or even if, if Kim Jong-un is, is sane enough to realize that if he launched nuke, that would be it for him, uh, just North Korea's uh, non-nuclear resources are, are 
really, you know, pretty, pretty impressive. I mean, by the time we eliminated all of their uh, conventional artillery that's lined up there on the, you know, at, at, the, at the border, uh, there would be you know, probably hundreds of thousands of lives that would be lost because, of course, South Korea, the biggest part of their population is right up there, you know, within within artillery range. And so even if we're not talking nuclear, uh, this is still would be a, a incredible, tremendous tragedy. And and God, it would, it would just be, you know, totally awful. I, I don't know how this ends, but I, I, I can't imagine it ends really well. What do you think the end game of this is going to be? You know, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I, the one positive, and I think there is one positive, as much as China is very much unwilling to be involved right now, uh, I think that it has to be clear to North Korea. I would, I think, I think, right, I'm making an assumption here, that if they take any kinds of steps that actually harm someone or, or potentially harm someone, that they would probably have to deal with a... Chinese attack as well is probably a bigger deterrent than anything the United States is doing, mm-hmm. um, because that would that's going to end the ability of China to have an, any kind of economic situation. Yeah. So I, I think that's really the only highlight here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think certainly China. I, th- I feel that China hasn't done more because, of course, they share that border and uh, they're they're concerned about the, the instability and what would be you know potentially a massive refugee crisis and so forth. And so, but but I think you're right. If North Korea pushes too far, then China becomes their biggest deterrent. And we can only hope, right, that Kim Jong Un is is rational enough. To, to recognize that, though, you know, I, I don't know how much I want to bet on the rationality of Kim Jong Un. But one thing I think we can say is that he's certainly a survivor, and if he is a survivor to the extent that I think he is, then he understands this. And and you know, for the hopes of, of for the sake of of hundreds of thousands of people, I certainly hope that's the case. True, and 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 the one kind of last positive note is to remember that politically speaking, when you have everything tied up in a family and an individual. You know, it only takes one death for there to be radical changes. And so, you know, his time too will pass. Uh, and in those kinds of situations, we may see more positive changes after his passing or at least more rational changes. Yeah, well, let's, geez, let's hope so. I mean, it seems like from from uh, from North Korean leader to North Korean leader, we've gotten more and more insane, I guess you could say. I think of it as the, the AJ Soprano effect for, for those who you've watched the show. It's, you know, you, you go down through the generations and you end up with these kind of hereditary leaders. And uh, well, you know, sometimes that there's a reason why this is not a good way to pick a leader. And, and I think uh, uh, Kim Jong-un is, is a great example of that sort of thing. You know, the, the, Trey, before we get to our, our next story, uh, I want to thank our second sponsor for today's show, SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a great, low-cost, and super convenient way to buy tickets for live events. And with SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed, and it only takes a few taps on the app or a few clicks if you access it through their website at SeatGeek.com. Now, I've got the app on my phone, and I use it on my computer, and a number of times I've timed how long it takes for me to go from opening it up to buying a ticket, and it's invariably under 30 seconds. And I love that I can go there whenever I want to find out what's going on around town. Like, right now I pulled it up. For instance, SeatGeek's telling me that Chicago, the band Chicago, along with the Doobie Brothers, will be around Cincinnati soon. So if I want to indulge, you know, in some... 1970s music music nostalgia well i am all set um and i also just found out that one of my all-time favorite artists elvis costello is going to be around in a few weeks and i would not have known about that or any of this if it hadn't been for SeatGeek. plus with SeatGeek, you can get updates on whatever venues events performers you, you want to keep track of uh you can even connect it with spotify your music library facebook get notifications about artists you listen to or follow but you can turn that off if you don't like notifications and when you buy a ticket they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar if you want and best of all politics guys listeners get twenty dollars off their first SeatGeek purchase all you have to do is Download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code POLITICSGUY. That's all one word and no S, just POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, so uh, what's, our, what's our next 
What's our next story up today, Troy? Well, I figure we might as well go from one tyrannical dictator to another and talk about Putin. <laughs> okay. Um, and the G20. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, the other big story this week is going to be the uh, the G20. And there's a number of different interesting narratives coming out of this. Uh, but I think the one we should start with is talk about the two-hour Putin-Trump uh, sit-down where the two appear to agree on a few things uh, that might be interesting here in the United States. So for one, it appears that Trump, by both his account and by Putin accounts, uh, agrees that Russia did not interfere uh, with the election la uh, last year. The White House is going to end up calling this meeting powerful. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to see that there is a limited Syrian uh, ceasefire that is theoretically has come out of this meeting. So this is the first time the two of them has, sit down, uh, has sat down as leaders. Uh, we have this kind of behind closed doors. We don't know exactly what's happened. We've had some tweets from Trump, some comments from Putin. What do you think about this, Michael? Well, I guess number one about the Syria ceasefire thing. I, the, I, when I, when I read that, I, I sort of rolled my eyes. We'll see. Uh, it's obvious. It's a, you know, it's a limited ceasefire. Uh, the, the, with the past history of these ceasefire agreements, none of them held up for very long at all. And, and hey, it would be great if this holds up and leads to something bigger in terms of cooperation and so forth. But honestly, given how different our objectives are, I don't really, I don't really see that happening. As for the second part of it, the sort of narratives about what was agreed to or not about uh, Russian interference, it seems like you're hearing a number of stories. Obviously, uh, the Russians are saying that, yes, that's what President Trump said, and we all agreed that we didn't interfere. Then there are some people from the Trump administration saying, well, no, that's not exactly what the president said. And so, I, I mean, obviously, the, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin's not going to say, well, yes, you know, we did interfere a little bit and we hope it's okay. And so everyone knows, I think everyone who's being rational knows that part of Russia's MO is to interfere in other countries' elections to the extent that they can. They do it in a huge way in a bunch of other countries. They've done it in the United States. And if they can hack voting machines, if they could, they certainly will do that sort of thing. That, that's part of their, I mean, they're, they're this, this horrifically corrupt, awful regime, and that's the kind of thing that they do. And so, uh, you know, I think that's just, you know, that's just a bunch of political theater saying that they don't do that or that there's any kind of agreement on that. And I don't disagree with that, but I I seriously wonder how much Trump does not get the political theater aspect, as you call it there. You know, this morning he is going to tweet out and every every week I think we tell each other, hey, we're, gonna, we're not going to talk as much about <laughs> Trump's tweets. But then you just can't not um, because this morning he tweets that, quote, Putin and I discussed forming an impenetrable cybersecurity unit so that election hacking and other many negative things will be guarded and safe. He then pivots in uh, his follow-up tweets uh, to blame Obama and the DNC for Putin. And Putin apparently had questions about this. You know, well, why didn't the DNC get investigated by the CIA and the FBI? And Obama, uh, Trump's basic answer is, well, Obama was president then. It was his fault, and we're, we're fixing it, Putin, good old buddy. What do you think about that? Well, I think the, the idea of entering into some sort of an agreement to build an impenetrable cybersecurity thing with, with your, with your, what do you, what do you think an impenetrable cybersecurity looks like? like what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I think it, I think what it looks like is voting machines that are, that are totally unconnected to anything online that have paper trails. That's what I think it is. But I think the idea of working with the Russians to do anything like this is like basically working with somebody who broke into your house to say, Hey, can you help me design an alarm system? I mean, talk about a <laughs> dumb idea. Uh, you know, again, I think it's, it's, it's totally ridiculous. Um, and I don't think anything's going to come of any of this. And it's, I, I think this would be the case regardless of who the president is, because our objectives are so very different. You know, I, I mean, the Russian regime, the Putin's regime is this corrupt, anti-democratic, authoritarian sort of regime that wants very, very different things than the United States wants. And, and so you can argue to the extent of, well, maybe Donald Trump is more authoritarian and more corrupt than, say, some other 
American presidents might have been. But still, there's a there's a world of difference here. And as long as the fundamental incentives are so divergent, it's going to be really difficult to come to any meaningful agreements on things, I think. Well, and this is a kind of interesting segue to kind of talk a little bit, too, about Trump and this idea of the modern day presidential, right? You know, uh, earlier this week on July 1st, he had argued that his social media use isn't presidential, it's modern day presidential. Uh, And so, you know, here we are again, we're talking about the G20, but we're talking about it through the lens of Trump's Twitter account, uh, a narrative that oftentimes seems to be in contrast to what's coming out of the White House, something, again, we've talked about this show a lot. You know, this week, kind of the non-story story was the the WWE CNN meme uh, that the White House had tweaked or Trump had tweaked and uh, popped out uh, on his Twitter account. You know, how do you see these things going together? What do you think about this modern day presidential having meetings with Putin and then tweeting about them in these kind of unusual ways. What does this mean for the presidency as we move forward? Well, well, you know, I mean, you mentioned the G20 thing. And so let let me address that first, because there's one one point I wanted to make about the the G20 thing uh, that that I think is sort of odd to me. I don't know where it's going to fit in exactly. But but it seems to me that, number one, this is this is the point that I think a lot of folks have made in the media that certainly we can see the growing divide between the United States and the other G20 countries on nationalism, on trade, and definitely on climate change, where it was, you know, 19 to 1 sort of thing. But, and so that's, that's, I think people have already picked up on that. But one thing I wanted to point out about the G20 meeting is, is for me, it showcases one of the many weird things about Donald Trump is his weird obsession with steel particularly Chinese steel. He's got like a, he's got like a bee in his bonnet about this thing. And it's really, really strange to me. He's decided that he's going to be the guy, right, who saves the U.S. steel industry. And I wanted to make a couple points here that I don't think are made often enough in the media. Number one, the U.S. steel industry is tiny. I mean, it's well under 200,000 people and, you know, automation's just going to shrink that even further. So even if you can save the entire industry, we're not, we're, we're not talking about a lot of jobs. I mean, 200,000 people, that's, that's, you know, you could practically fit that number of people into, you know, the, the big house in, in, in Michigan or, or, you know, OSU stadium, or at least combined, you know, that's not many people. And, and, and secondly, when you, you know, he talks about China being this horrible, you know, uh, setting these horrible prices on low prices on, on steel and all this Chinese steel. China is not even in the top 10 in U.S. steel imports. Most people don't realize that, but, but actually China accounts for very few steel imports. The top importers, the places where we get most of our steel, uh, Canada is number one. Then Brazil, South Korea, Mexico, Turkey. I mean, China's ranked number 11. And so what's Donald Trump doing? Is it, is it a matter of he just doesn't understand the policy, doesn't know the details? Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe it's just a rhetorical kind of thing. But to me, it's one more example of this, this odd man fixating on odd little things that I think are very much to the detriment of, of the country. Because, of course, if you have this sort of, you launch this sort of crusade and decide you want to, you know, up, up uh, tariffs on steel, well, what does that hurt? That hurts the far, far, far bigger U.S. construction industry and home buyers and that sort of thing. So it's just part of his nonsensical kind of hodgepodge of, I don't know what that goes on in his head, but it makes very, very little sense to me. That's, I just wanted to point that out before we got to the CNN thing, because it's just puzzling as heck to me. I, I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, it's fascinating because as a matter of fact, at the G20 meeting, you have Theresa May pressuring the United States in the face of the Brexit to reject protectionism in order to raise living standards. I mean, this is a, fin- a fascinating reversal. I mean, and so what yeah. you're talking about here is something, I mean, I don't know, you're, you're sounding a little libertarian, Michael. I just want to point that out here. Uh, because what you're kind of arguing is, is look, you can't be looking in the past to try to protect industries. You've got to look forward. Um, but it seems that a lot of the protectionist strategy, that, that seems to be Trump's America first is a return to protectionism. Um, what do you think about that? I, I think, I wish somebody would 
would would make Donald Trump watch, or he probably would never read an economics textbook. But but I wish someone would actually, you know, maybe find a nice short little YouTube video uh, on on basic macroeconomics, or, or maybe they could do a segment in it on Fox and Friends. That might be the only way that he actually watches it. I don't know, but uh, that would be that would be ideal. But but I I agree entirely. And on trade, I am pretty you know, libertarian on that. I mean, I think in the longer run, free trade benefits everyone. And what we can see, I think, is that the rest of the world is moving on and is working around the United States on these issues. You know, Japan just signed this big uh, free trade agreement with uh, with the EU. And, you know, we if, if we want to be left behind, we're doing a great job of it. And so, yeah, I think this is, uh, I think this is a really bad, bad idea. Well, if Trump or anybody else wants to read a little volume, anybody who wants to, there's a little book, just very slim, called The Choice, um, A Fable of Free Trade, which is actually a fascinating little book on that very question, taking a look, imagining a future under free trade and protectionism. Um, and it is interesting because you have uh, Europe, I mean, traditionally speaking, Europe has been where there has been the most protectionism, I think, to their detriment. And so it is fascinating to see that in this particular cycle, we mainly had presidential candidates who were all more or less protectionist to different yeah. degrees. I mean, this is actually one of the things that, say, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump did not look that differently on. Right. And now here we are at the G20, where the United States is the one making this kind of fascinating, out-of-character protectionist position. Yeah, I, I mean, and I get it in the sense that you know, as as you know, Trey, and I'm sure as a lot of listeners know that just because free trade means that everyone is going to be better off on average in the long run doesn't mean that there isn't some significant pain, uh, especially in certain pockets in the shorter run. But you, you, you can't, you know, you have to find a way to, to work through that. You can't just say, well, we're just going to try to cling to the past because you're going to end up hurting more people in the long run. So certainly there are people who are suffering. Uh, certainly workers are dislocated and lose jobs in the short run. But the answer to that is not to try to recreate a world that doesn't exist anymore. That's just going to create more pain, unfortunately. I mean, the classic example, of course, is, you know, you can't protect the buggy maker yep. from the automobile forever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. So on that, I think you and I see eye to eye on that. Well, I'm su I'm surprised, but I'm happy about that, Michael. Everyone's um, and before we move away from the G20 the, the, this morning, the, at the closing remarks, the, the last thing I'd like to kind of ask you about is that, uh, you know, Merkel, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel called out Donald Trump specifically. And she said, quote, unfortunately, and I deplore this, the United States of America left the climate agreement or rather announced their intention of doing this. Uh, what do you think? This tone sets the fact that the United States has left the Paris Agreement. We already talked a little bit about that. You and Jay have talked a little bit about this. But now we're kind of seeing some of its effects, and we're seeing it here at the G20. What do you think about those effects? Well, you know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's really sort of tragic, actually, because I, I believe that the United States should lead the world in, in everything that's really important, like trade, like climate change, like keeping the peace, all those sort of things. I think we are uniquely positioned because of the size of our economy and because of what I used to believe was our sort of, in a way, kind of moral authority as sort of the leading democracy in the world. But it seems like, you know, now we're abandoning this for this sort of uh, nativist, nationalist, sort of uh, head in the sand type of approach. And the only silver lining I see, at least on the climate change piece, is that we won't formally pull out until uh, right around the 2020 election. And with any luck, we're going to get a new commander in chief who isn't uh, who doesn't seem to think that uh, uh, we should have the policies of the 1950s or earlier. You know, so that's that's about the only positive I can see in that. Well, on that silver lining, let's take a move to the CNN video and modern day presidential and, and kind of kind of circle back to that yeah. question. We had, you know, Trump this morning with tweets about uh, Putin. We had his July 1st tweets about how, you know, using social media is modern day presidential. And he makes this argument. He's made it forever. And it's, it's fascinating to me that people didn't think that he meant it, that he needs this. He needs to beat the fake news in order to win. And I really think that behind it all, that's what this CNN video is about. I mean, there's all these little interesting 
semi-interesting threads that are coming out of it. But I think the fascinating question here is, you know, this idea that a president is going to circumnavigate the press. And I'm actually particularly fascinated with that because that's that's my area of expertise and study. That's what I write about. So, but what do you think about that, Michael? Well, you know, I I reluctantly watched the CNN video, which was a ridiculous little amateurish kind of thing. And and I can see where some people in the media, particularly at CNN, might have been uh, uh, upset at that sort of thing. But I also think I'm trying to look at this through the lens of who I believe Donald Trump is. Uh, I believe he's an entertainer and a promoter fundamentally, and that's what he's been. That's what's defined his entire life. I always, I also believe that he is just a, uh, he is just a, a sad, insecure, angry little man. Um, and, and so I think you add those two things in and this makes perfect sense. This kind of stuff I think is what gets him going, what jazzes him. So if, if people want to encourage Donald Trump, if people want to energize him, I think the best thing they could possibly do to make Donald Trump smile is to react to things like this with anger and outrage. That's what feeds him. He loves that. You know, we talk about people have talked about this codependent relationship between Donald Trump and on, particularly on Twitter and the media. I think it's absolutely right. To me, I think the better response is pity. I, I think I'm pretty sure Donald Trump would hate the idea of pity. And, and, and so if you want to, if you don't want to encourage Donald Trump, well, maybe you shouldn't feed his, feed his ego, feed this sort of, you know, the hell with you sort of thing that he, that he, I think feeds on for, for, for the, the mainstream media. So I think that's kind of my main, my main initial thought about that. But also, I guess I'm also sad in the sense that just the very fact that this is a big deal and that's taken up so much time. I'm I'm going to sound like a social conservative here, which is maybe a little weird for me, but it, to me, it points to kind of this general coarsening of debate, lowering of debate and, and the rise sort of celebrity culture, which I think made Donald Trump possible in the, in the first place. And, and it's really, it's really kind of sad that this is the sort of thing that, you know, gets so much focus. And, you know, this isn't just related to Donald Trump, I want to point out. For instance, this week it was announced that Sean Hannity, of all people, is getting the William F. Buckley Award for Media Excellence. And the idea that the distance, the distance between Sean Hannity and William F. Buckley is just, is astronomical, Trey. I mean, it's just, I can't even imagine that they'd be mentioned in the same sentence. And, you know, on the left, you know, Bob Dylan gets a Nobel Prize in literature over people like Rohit Mystery, Salman Rushdie, William Trevor. I mean, that's, again, it just, it blows my mind. And maybe I'm just a cranky middle-aged guy. I don't think so though. And I see all of these trends and it just, it just makes me kind of sad actually. You know, it, I, I can, I understand and I can sympathize with that, you know, but on a macro level, what's fascinating to me, and I think what's, what's being missed in the specifics of it is the fact that I would hypothesize that the mainstream media has become a reactive rather than an investigatory body. Yeah. You know, my, my, my hypothesis would be that if you want to know what's going to be the stories upcoming on all the major news networks, Take a look at what Trump's tweeting about. Amen. And if that's the case, uh, then in that sense, Twitter has won. And in that sense, Trump has won. And I don't think everybody's gotten that. And not only that, and you make this point that it comes out of celebrity. And the reason I don't think everybody's gotten that, because take a look, uh, you know, the what got everybody kind of excited a few weeks ago, and it kind of continues to have uh, merit, was when uh, Dwayne, formerly The Rock Johnson, said, you know what, I could be president. I'm going to run for president. It kind of had a mock introduction to that. And, you know, many Democrats went, yes, this is the real answer to beating uh, Donald Trump. Now, again, I'm not attempting to say, hey, look, the party is moving in that way. But the fact that there was any kind of you know, response to that in out, you know, major outlets saying, oh, this is interesting. Uh, you know, we're not just talking about some random Twitter uh, users. Says to me that I don't think everybody has quite figured out and understand what's really happening here, yeah. which is that there's a shift occurring. You know, everybody's so caught up in the micro stories, they're missing the shift. 
No, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think especially on the whole reactive thing, and it makes perfect sense if if you sort of take that kind of macro, that longer view, and understand how the incentives for the media have changed. You know, back in the day, before social media, before uh, a lot of well, the modern media landscape, uh, newspapers were fairly profitable. There were fairly few of them. They could afford to invest the resources into investigatory journalism and that sort of stuff. But now you have reporters have to be, you know, reacting to tweets have to be that the news cycle is so much more incredibly sped up. And so those economic incentives drive the reactivity. Well, that's part of it. But the other part of what drives it, of course, is we like those little dopamine hits. We like that little kind of new thing right now. And, and so you add those two things together and you get an increasingly uh, a superficial and trivial kind of culture, you know, and, and, you know, this is something I've mentioned this book before, but I'll recommend it again. Uh, Neil Postman in a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death saw this coming way back in 1985. I'd highly encourage people to read that book, but, and we can certainly see it in the president's, you know, in president Trump, there was a study by Axios that found that for instance, in June, only 2.5% of his tweets were policy related. And, and that's, that's where we are now. And that's, and, and that's number one, I think sad. And number two, for at least the bulk of the, the, the population, I think that's just inevitable because both the economics and human nature, how, how our wiring just kind of drive us in that direction. And, and that's one of those things where I don't have a good, a good answer for I agree. I mean, it's, it's always fascinating every year. Uh, I'm sure you experience this too, but you, as listeners, you might not know, we're both political science professors and you always have that contingent of involved students who, you know, their lifeblood is that, you know, immediacy news cycle. And they always ask, you know, is this class going to be about, you know, the things happening now? And what they mean by that is, you know, the story that happened 30 seconds ago. And my answer is always yes, but really what I mean is yes in a broad sense, meaning that I think that these are part of broader trends that we're going to talk yeah. about, not that I'm going to try to address every single thing that pops up in your newsfeed at that moment. But you're right, that, that misses you out on the dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> that misses, you know, and, and there's not an easy response to that. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, it's pretty clear there's a lot of research that says that the most viral type stuff is is not rational, it's emotional. And to me, the analogy I always think of is how big food companies stuff their products full of, you know, simple carbs and sugar because we have that fundamental drive. It's the drive that, that is actually helpful in an environment where that sort of thing was scarce. But now that's not the case. And, and regardless of whether it's manufactured food or, or manufactured outrage, the result is really not good for us because we're gorging on this stuff that ends up making us, well, sick, whether it's ourselves or our societies. That's actually a phenomenal example. I mean, you would be shocked at how much sugar is added to things so that people will purchase it. Or, you know, the the change in what an apple tastes like today is nothing. Like, you know, when you read yeah. history, you know, somebody's eating apple, they're not tasting what you're tasting. But we shouldn't get too deep into that because we'll, that's a different episode probably. <laughs> hey, for folks who are interested uh, in that, I should you know, mention, I should mention that uh, a while back I did an interview with Marion Nestle, who does uh, food politics and food policy. So if you're into that, check it out in the archives and you can get all kinds of stuff about sugar and big food and all that kind of stuff. But sorry, sorry about that. I just wanted to get that plug in for that earlier interview. No, I've got to go back and re-listen to that. Um, so on that kind of thinking about longer term things, why don't we talk about something that's a little bit less sexy, but it's no less fascinating. And that's the Illinois has a budget. Wow. Uh, it took two years of political sparring, missed payments, and the worst credit rating uh, in history. But the longest state budget impasse has finally uh, become no more uh, as the governor's veto was overturned, including 10 members of his own party. And so let's kind of set this up. What had happened over the last two years, uh, Illinois was not able to come to an agreement about what to do. You know, how are we going to meet up revenues? Uh, the governor is looking for massive amounts of tax decreases. And so what actually ends up happening in this budget to make it happen is personal income tax, I know if you're in Illinois, you're going to hate this, is going to go up from 3.75% to 4.95% or a 1.2% increase. Um, some analysts are still saying that's not going to be enough to have a balanced budget and that the credit rating will continue to go down, but that's yet to be seen. So meanwhile, uh, uh, Bruce, the governor, his approval ratings are at 35%. Ouch. So there's questions about 
how does this fit into this broader picture? As a matter of fact, Sam Brown back in Kansas has kind of faced a similar override when his party has turned against some tax slashing philosophy. So what do you think about all of this, specifically Illinois, but also thinking about the Midwest and, you know, kind of tax cuts and tax policies in general? Well, I guess I think the chickens are coming home to roost. You know, uh, uh, here's how I look at it. Uh, And this kind of in a broader, broader view, uh, the Republican game plan on on the economy, I think, since really since uh, Ronald Reagan back in the early 80s, has been deep cuts in taxes, especially for the rich, and then to focus cuts in programs to kind of balance that out, mainly on programs that protect the poorest, the most vulnerable, who coincidentally tend not to be Republican voters. And, you know, on, on the federal level, what happens, what we've seen year after year, is that revenue loss from tax cuts is always greater than what they gain from cutting programs and this theoretical supply side magic, which is going to increase the size of the pie for everyone. And, and hey, this is not me saying that tax cuts sometimes don't help to increase economic activity, but the projections on that are almost vastly overblown. Now, this works on the federal level because the federal government can run big deficits. It doesn't work on the state level in states, well, like like Kansas or like Illinois, because states can't do this sort of thing. And so what happens, you see these, you see these uh, Republican extremists come in in these states and they cut, they, they cut taxes to the bone. The, uh, the, the supposed revenue increases from economic activity flourishing fail to materialize to the extent that they claim they would. So what do they do? They try to make up for it by cutting programs on, well, like I said, the poorest and most vulnerable. And then, and then finally, we're seeing the natural limits of this where voters are saying, um, uh, enough is enough and we can't have this. And then they have to, you know, make some changes. And so I say, Thank, thank God for, you know, at least the, the rationality of the voters, at least after a point. Well, I, I, I'm going to push a little bit on this because you, you kind of point back to the Reagan era that then kind of trickles down to the state. But I would argue that part of the problem has been that Republican – and this is where I'm going to part ways with Republicans and, and probably sound a little more libertarian um, – is that they have been willing to gain, as Reagan was – tax cuts um, by negotiating to not reduce spending in, in meaningful across the board ways. And that I'm going to argue that that's the bigger failure of places like Illinois and Kansas rather than the tax cuts themselves. What do you think about that? Oh, I, I totally disagree with that, but that, that makes sense. You coming at it from a more libertarian perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm in favor of much more Government, uh, government involvement in the economy in instances where it helps to uh, deal with or minimize uh, market failures in various ways and, and provide a social safety net. So I think that the idea, and I, I agree with you, that sort of uh, the Grover Norquist kind of Americans for tax reform sort of vision is to not only have those tax cuts, but also to balance those tax cuts off with amazingly deep cuts in government social programs. And, and I get, you know, I, I mean, I sort of made this sort of snide remark, right, about cuts to the uh, to the poorest and most vulnerable. Well, that's where government spends a lot of money. You take a look at, for instance, Medicaid spending, which is obviously a big issue now with the, with the Senate disaster of a health care bill and so forth. You know, why are these things subject to cuts? Because that's where a lot of the money goes to. Same thing with, you know, in, in the Illinois instance, uh, education. There were huge cuts in colleges in, in, in the state suffered to an amazing extent. Why? Because that's where a lot of the funding goes to, because I see that as a fundamental responsibility of government to help protect those who are least able to protect and care for themselves. And I think that uh, there are certainly some well-intentioned, honest, uh, decent libertarians like, like you, Trey, who honestly, who honestly believe that the private sector can do these things more efficiently and more effectively if given the opportunity. I'm a lot more skeptical about that. I also think there are a lot more conservatives who give lip service to that idea, but are a lot more interested in just giving tax cuts to their wealthy buddies and campaign donors. I, I'm not going to disagree with that last part. Um, I, having worked 
long enough in, in that sector to recognize it. But what I am going to disagree a little bit is, is I'm not sure. I mean, so, you, you know, if you're going to continue to increase taxes in Illinois, uh, you're, they're still actually not balancing the budget fully with this go, with the 1.2% tax increase. But you mean we have other states, let's point to Florida, for example, where we are able to have uh, tax surpluses despite not having a personal income tax. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be the, hey, we're going to cut all social services uh, to have a state to have those kinds of things take place. But maybe we have to kind of decide how we're going to prioritize. And so I'm, I'm, my question, though, is, you know, in a state like Illinois, could it just be the case that they're, we're, they're trying to do too many things? It's just, I mean, OK, you could pay for it, but is it going to be possible? No, and, and I, you know, I think that's a that's a fair point, And I agree with you to the extent that, you know, we can't just assume that every state is, you know, has to do these things. Or, you know, there are some states, as you point out, like Florida, that has been able to be more successful in this. And I think there are obviously a lot of, a lot of reasons why Florida is different from, from Illinois, but. Of course, because we've got things like uh, the people are traveling here. We've got Orlando, right? That's a whole beaches everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, Illinois has Chicago and, and as its economic center, and that's, that's largely yet yeah, not to disparage the rest of the state or anything like that. But, but no, I think I'm not, I'm not advocating anything sort of across the board or overall general rules. I think we need to look at specific state circumstances and things that may work well in one state, you know, won't work as well in others. And so we can't assume anything, you know, from state to state. But all, but I think the one thing that we should assume, or one thing at least that I assume and take as an article of faith is that every state has a responsibility to the poorest and weakest and most helpless of its citizens. Now, how they choose to care for those people may vary from state to state, depending on the state's circumstances. But one thing that is morally indefensible is for a state to essentially abrogate that responsibility because it would mean raising taxes on the you know better off folks. That to me is well morally repugnant, actually. Well, um, I think we're going to have a minor, a minor disagreement where that morality might lie. Sure. Um, but I think that's kind of beyond the, the but, issue of the Illinois budget. Sure, so but, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't we'll disagree with that one with... on hold. And maybe we'll have a whole, maybe for our <laughs> Patreon supporters, we'll do something where we talk about that issue specifically, Michael. You know, I think um, that would be great. Yeah. I, because I know that you're not, you know, you just like Jay doesn't hate the poor, you don't hate the poor. And I know you and I fundamentally agree that, that society's, need to find a way to lift up uh, and, and make sure that the poorest and most vulnerable aren't uh, suffering needlessly. We just have different ideas as to how that can be best achieved. Indeed, indeed. So, so why don't we talk a little bit about what we are listening to, reading, or doing this week? Why don't you start us off, Michael? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I this week I am recommending uh, actually a an episode of a podcast, I believe it was uh, the, it was either the weeds or the Ezra Klein show. I'll, I'll make sure I'll give you the link, make sure we have in the show notes, but Ezra Klein uh, interviews Ovik Roy on, on healthcare. And, and, and Ovik Roy is a, is a healthcare conservative healthcare expert. Um, now listeners know how I feel about Ezra Klein. I had this sort of tortured relationship sort of with Ezra Klein. Uh, he's an incredibly smart guy. Uh, and he does a lot. I think of, Great work on Vox.com and, and The Weeds and The Ezra Klein Show. But what drives me absolutely nuts about Ezra Klein is he stays so often in his little liberal kind of silo. And I'll listen. To, I, I, I'm a regular a, a religious listener to The Weeds and The Ezra Klein Show. And it drives me nuts when he and his fellow liberal policy wonks say, well, I don't understand the conservative view on this. And I just think, well, geez, have a conservative on your show. How difficult is that? And so he does that in this case on healthcare, hugely important issue. And I really think it brings out the best in Ezra Klein. I mean, and it's an interesting argument too from Roy. He 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 doesn't really like the Senate bill, except he sort of does. <laughs> Essentially, he thinks it has mostly the right structure and the right incentives, at least kind of compared to Obamacare and sort of the pre-Obamacare status quo. But there are certainly some areas within that Senate structure that need work 
basically kind of making it more generous, though that's probably a little bit of an overgeneralization. But I really think it's worth checking out because Ezra Klein is really, really good when he has somebody pushing back against him. And I wish he would, you know, bring more conservatives on his show. So that's my recommendation for this week. That sounds exciting. Um, I'm actually going to push uh, push the platform a little bit here, and I'm going to out myself. Uh, I am a video game guy. As a matter of fact, I collect uh, video games, play them regularly. And so this uh, week, I'm going to recommend a video game. It's called Life is Strange. Now, uh, before you uh, put this off and say, oh, you know, this is just one guy's weird uh, thing, Life is Strange, anybody can pick this up and play it. It's not a Twitch game. Um, it's available for every kind of platform for your computer. Um, and what's really powerful and interesting about this is, is it deals with the really interesting choices of uh, two young women uh, dealing with kind of power, art, relationships, uh, and understanding their own relationships inside the politics of a really unique um, town. And so I'm going to suggest Life is Strange this week. Uh, it's a, a story arc. It's all based on that. It's really interesting. Uh, and I would encourage you to go out and take a look and play with it. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to make a pitch in general. Uh, I think like other kinds of art forms, there are some really amazing uh, multimedia interactive uh, video games that are worth dealing with. As a matter of fact, I'll even say that in my classes, I have in my honors class, students play video games. Um, and so Life is Strange is going to be my recommendation for this week to deal with both the personal, uh, some really fascinating sexuality identity issues, and to have a protagonist as a young woman, uh, and the politics of a town. Uh, Life is Strange is going to be mine. Oh, wow. That's, that sounds, I like it out of the box. Very different and interesting that I am, I am uh, definitely intrigued. And, you know, that made me think, wouldn't it be great to do sort of like a, a special kind of, uh, I have to mention an insider program, wouldn't it be great to do like a special uh, episode on, on uh, games and politics and so forth? Because I actually have used uh, video games in my class before. My wife does it in her international relations class. That would be a, a fun thing to explore, I think. That would be a lot of fun. All right. So I think that pretty much does it for this week, doesn't it, Trey? I think so, Michael. All right. Well, hey, thanks everyone for listening. You know, we really hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors whose support is really critical to keeping the show going. Our first is Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. Next is SeatGeek, the easy way to get great low-cost tickets to live events. And Politics Guys listeners, you get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download their app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code POLITICSGUY on checkout. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you know how to reach us, mail at politicsguys.com or there's our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politics guys page. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. And remember, and just I mentioned at the top of the show, our uh, sort of new and updated Patreon page with our new politics guys insiders program. We'd love to get your feedback on that. Check it out. And that's patreon.com slash politics guys. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.